0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to um, play for you some of the uh, interviews, some of the great guests we've had at JM and the AM. Uh, Dr. David Ross-Marin, who directs the Center for Anxiety, visited JM and the AM to discuss anxiety before the summer, what uh, parents and what um, youngsters are going through before the camping experience begins. My conversation with Dr. David Ross-Marin, that's next right here at JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. Well, it's uh, <laughs> always the first first couple of minutes of uh, Dr. David Ross-Marin's uh, visits to us here at JMAM even before. You don't need those up to you, but even before we get on the air, always very, very interesting. I've learned a lot over the last couple of minutes, including the fact that he just completed a brand new book. So he... Must have had a very anxiety filled experience because we know when it comes to writing books, that can be a very anxious experience. Good morning, Doctor. Ross Barrett, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, and thank you for putting me on the spot. <laughs> Am I right, though? It's a, an anxious <laughs> experience? It's one filled with anxiety? I was
1: pretty chilled, actually, throughout <laughs> really? this one. Well, first, it took me four years. <laughs> yeah. But also, I learned a lot about uh, the topic. It was a topic of love, and
0: um, it has been it was it was actually a lot of fun, believe it or not. Interesting. So writing books can be, and publishing in general, can be a pleasant experience. It can be. Most most <laughs> most authors you know are on the other side of this of this yeah, argument, right? I guess. You've never heard that before? <laughs> yeah. That it can be a harrowing experience? Center for Anxiety has a website, centerforanxiety.org. Their locations include West 57th Street in New York City, Bedford Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, Route 59 up in Suffern, and one in Massachusetts as well that we always mention. And uh, it's been a while since we've seen you. Welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that. Let me tell you what's been causing anxiety in the, uh, in the Jewish world okay. <laughs> uh, recently. First of all, with the, with the embassy move, some people had some anxiety, yeah, no what, wondering what the reaction would be. No kidding. Uh, you know, in many cases, um, um, uh, developing, I don't know if this is a, a proper term, developing false anxiety or, 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 cre- or creating for themselves problems before they actually existed, thinking that the world would come to an end if the embassy was moved. So that was that was one thing that came to my mind. Very then, much. So. Then I'll tell you another thing that was that was filled with anxiety outside of Israel. We just had a three day untiff. <laughs> and a, a three day untiff, I will tell you, can be a, an anxiety filled one as one spends seventy three hours with family and friends.
1: It it certainly can be for, for a variety of reasons, the family and friends and also a lot of people today are not very good at chilling out and right. relaxing and enjoying. Right. So when we have to do that for a protracted period, it's like ah, what right. am I going to do?
0: It's funny. Uh, the people that mentioned to me since Monday night how great it was to be disconnected, and you know what that term means these days—to be disconnected for three days—they right, they were they were all above a certain age. Nobody in their twenties said to me it was great being disconnected for three days.
1: That's uh, it's a it's it's a lost
0: art to be able to you know R and R right. Actually, the truth is, one should be one should give themselves a pat on the back after havdalah that they made it through the seventy three <laughs> hours without without that anxiety or anxiousness of having no choice but to pick up their phone. I
1: couldn't couldn't agree more. It's I think. true. That's huh? great.
0: How was your yacht? Was it relaxing? Great. It was great. I you, relaxed. You didn't I feel out, out. you didn't feel out of loss so that you were missing anything. Without the alerts, or without the news, or without all the other stuff, coming? I,
1: I have I have a, a, an advantage that other people do not have, and that is I see the difficulty of not doing so, and it's in my face professionally on a regular basis. So I know that I have to learn to chill, and so, I do.
0: So it didn't bother you that you missed the royal wedding? That that was not a big concern of yours over yonder. Royal what? what <laughs> royal wedding? What royal wedding? <laughs> anyway, so those, those are just a couple of areas that have been uh, causing a little bit of anxiety in the community recently. Both of those are behind us. There is something ahead of us, and that's uh, the summer months. This is the time when uh, when both parents and uh, youngsters are getting ready for summer camp. Right. Some of them very excited about it; other the others of them not always excited. You know, anxious, wondering what the uh, experience going to be like. By the way, sometimes I think that it might be more difficult for parents than for the campers, and I'll tell you why. For some reason, even. Those. Uh, this has been my observation, and as you know I, know, I know a little bit about summer camping. Um sure. It's it's always been my observation that the kids who are going through this first time experience have this this dual feeling going through them: the tremendous excitement of this new adventure and stuff that things that their classmates and others have done before. Now they get to do, and of course, the other side, they're you know somewhat anxious and wondering. What's the experience going to be like? It's a foreign environment, etc. Right. But with the parents, I don't know if they have the first one. I think they only have the second one. I don't think they have that excitement that their kid is going. I think they're only worried about what this transition is going to be like.
1: Yeah, what the transition is going to be out and what the fallout is going to be. Right. You know, is it going to – how it's going to impact them and also the cost. There's a number of reasons why the parents
0: would, uh, would have a difficulty with so it. What so what advice would you give at this time of year?
1: Well, there's a lot. And it kind of relates to what we were saying before about the three-day yumtiv that um, – You know, I think the most – what is summer camp for? Ultimately, it's about one thing. Three-letter word. Fun? Fun. Good. It's about having fun. Thank God
0: I got that right. (laughs) I don't know. Someone may walk in and say, you know, enhanced education experience or something. That's exactly what
1: it's not about. (laughs) Thank God. Because, yeah, thank God is right. Because over the academic year, people are pushing their kids to the brink these days. And it's because everybody has to get ahead and we need to – be either, one, either because we have to one-up somebody else and our kids have to one-up somebody else for status symbols and also just to have a sense of accomplishment ourselves. That is not what summer is about. In fact, it's not really what life is about. Life is about connection and forging relationships, and the success we have is a tool to be able to forge those relationships. But at least for a couple months a year, at least for a kid... Poor thing. You know, Ghost has a double curriculum. (laughs) She has a a a double, you know, has teachers and principals and people on his case or on her case the entire year with so much social pressure. And then it's not only during school. It's also the after school activities. And those aren't fun. Those are tasks to be able to master. There are things that they have to be able to become a, you know, master uh, whether it's ballet or right. uh, or an instrument, or, plus
0: even if it is fun, it's part of a very rigorous schedule. It's
1: all in, especially in New York, especially in the Northeast. Right. It's 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 pressure, mm-hmm. and that's not what summer is for. Um, certain kids, though, it's tricky because they really have an acumen, and it's really a great opportunity for them without an academic pressure to be able to immerse themselves in, let's say, a tennis camp. Or a ballet camp a or specialty something like that. camp, but those kids, I would never uh, put them in, in such a camp. I would never uh, recommend that they be in such a place unless they're the kind of kid who knows how to chill during the year. If they really can chill and relax and just hang with their friends, and they're um, they're able to do that, if they if they were um, not uh, negatively affected by the three day umptive, then they're a good. Then they might be a good candidate. Um, but pushing a kid beyond that. Um, for sure not. Interesting. Not today. I don't
0: know about most, but there's a large group of parents that would not listen to your advice. I imagine so. That would feel that the, the alternate or the, you know, the, um, the other side of the issue is more important. Getting them ahead and, uh, you know, getting them to hone a skill that could lead to whatever it ends up leading to. That's exactly why I'm saying this. No, no, I get that. I'm just saying that it's not, it's, to you it's logical. To many of us, it, says it doesn't seem like the logical uh, route.
1: Well, I'm not sure if it's logical or if it's empirical because mm. we're looking at levels of anxiety and depression among children and young adults today that are far beyond what has ever what has ever occurred. Do many of them say they're overworked? Sure. If you ask them. It's a feel, big symptom. Absolutely. If you have conversations with the children, and that we do anyway, we're at least the ones who are coming into our office, they feel stressed. They feel like people don't understand them. They feel that they have... As young as... Six and certainly teenagers. Teenagers for sure. They are in there. It's incredible pressure today um, to get ahead, which is so ironic because we're more affluent than we ever have as a society. Right. We're doing better. We're more successful than we ever have been. There's there's more creature comforts and more basic things in place. More people have motor vehicles and indoor plumbing and, and electricity iPhones. and and right and than than we ever have. Yet we're pushing ourselves harder than ever and we don't know how to relax it's even the for
0: twenty two hours. And taking two day vacations instead of two week vacations. <laughs> Let alone two months. Right. Oh, forget that, yeah.
1: <laughs> well that but that's part of life. You know, I, I was talking with uh with my partner here, David Braid, on the way in, we we're talking about uh about Shabbos, that Shabbos is part of life. You know, supposed to be once one in every seven days, just taking off. I'm not talking about Shabbos here. I'm mm-hmm. talking about the the idea that the need for rest. Human beings have a need for rest and, rec- and recreation and relaxation and hanging out and just being and forging those connections and friendships and that's what summer's for.
0: It's funny because a lot of people, I'm just processing this as you're saying it. A lot of people would sit where you are and say, you know, we. A certain category of people, are called workaholics. Totally. And that is a and, – and, and what they would say is it is a negative term to call someone a workaholic not because – just follow me – not because um, they're describing a quote-unquote disease like, you know, uh, alcoholic or something. You know, that's where they get the term from, obviously. Right. But because they – because anybody who uses the term is degrading those – who are spending their time working? Who are you know utilizing their time productively? There are people who would say that. Yet you're saying that it, that well, what would you say about a workaholic? What would you say about somebody who is on you know twenty hours a day, seven days a week? What twenty would-
1: hours is a lot. Listen, I- I'll tell you, I'm somewhat guilty as charged here because I'm working probably s- between sixty-five and eighty hours a week. So oh. you see the perfect specimen yeah. for us to analyze. But when I chill out. <laughs> I, I take time to chill out right. and relax. Because you're conscious of it. I And I do it intentionally. And when I do that, then right. I'm And some of the workaholics
0: may not realize that they'll get more accomplished if they would do that. 100%. And, they, and their life in general would be even more productive if they would do that. Right.
1: No question. The litmus test of a workaholic is do you like to relax? Right. Do you like to chill? Or is it something that when you start to do it, this anxiety creeps right. in, the tension creeps in? If it's the latter, then you should probably call my office. My,
0: fa- my <laughs> family jokes that I can't. Go through a day if I haven't been on the air that morning. Well, you're so
1: chilled now, so I don't know. Maybe you're working. Yeah, good right. idea.
0: Maybe that's actually a good point. You know, maybe I'm so chilled it. on the air. That, that work is a chilling experience for me. Yeah, I, I maybe guess. As many, maybe as many have suggested, it's not really work. <laughs> that could be. Yeah.
1: I just you know channel that inner ability to chill in other contexts. All right. And- so
0: back to the topic. Dave, uh, Dr. David Rosemarin is here, Center for Anxiety. What practical <laughs> advice are we giving to parents? For the next few weeks As they go through The next 30 days Because in about 30 days The kids are getting on the bus What are we telling them About preparing Themselves And their children For the summer
1: Right okay So number one Just to sum up What we were saying is Chill yourself. Model chilling out behavior. Tell, encourage your kids to chill out. Don't put them through more pressure than they have to be. That's number one. And
0: in this case, that means don't sit and worry about stuff that, which is happening a month from now, right? That's part of it.
1: Or while they're there, like oh, are they going to be prepping for their SATs? No, and you know what? I hope not. Right. I hope that they're just relaxing and chilling right. with their friends. And so then this is not a
0: homesickness that. transition discussion. This is a you know what a kid needs to do. What you need to encourage your kid to do with their summer.
1: So homesickness is it, there is a transition that occurs right. to many kids when they go to camp, which is perfectly normal. It's hard. I would Sometimes, think
0: it's part of the anxiety. Yeah.
1: Well, I think it, it gets worsened when kids don't know how to just relax and be. Um, if a kid is happy, go lucky, and chilled, and relate, and can relate to others, and has that connection, then it's easier for them to let go right. and to be away from mom and dad and from their siblings and their their creature comforts of their of their own. Uh, their own home and then they can they can just chill out more but there is another aspect of that which is that people do have difficulty transitioning Um, most people do it's not Right. You know, and that's not a sign of anything wrong right I most
0: mean, people don't like change
1: yeah and and that's fine you know if it's a couple days that the kid's having a hard time you know especially the first summer you might even expect right. it to be a week or longer that you know a child is or a parent for that matter you know putting your kid on right. the bus for the first time right. first child you know it's not the you know, yes I, not,
0: speak, I can speak from experience you know, on <laughs> <you know>, that one
1: <laughs> that night like oh no what's happening with them I mean <laughs> that's normal that's nothing to be worried about that's just you know a, a transition to or from also by the way there's also the transitioning from on the other side of camp, that when they come back, you know, having some sort of adequate structure in the weeks uh, between camp and school that holds them and contains them enough but isn't overwhelming, sort of having, you know... And they're
0: also used to a little bit of independence, right? Even though they're in camp still, they're away from family, et cetera, right?
1: Right, and they might have changed during camp. They might have uh, met new people who are good influences or maybe not such good influences. And, you know, those those have to be navigated... um, Well, one of the things we've done for that also is we have these one-session meetings at our office. Um, People often think of psychotherapy as being many years, decades, multiple times a week, (laughs) you know, uh, enormous um, uh, investment of time and and energy and and, and finances for that matter. What we often do around camp time is offer single sessions that parents um, will either come themselves or they'll bring their child for one session and meet with a member of my staff. Month of June. Typically, this time of year, right. yeah, and either because it could, often it's because they, either they or, or one of their siblings had a difficult adjustment the previous right. year, but it could it really should be done prophylactically, like before there's an issue. If there's any concern that there might be an issue, bring them in and or have a conversation with someone uh, 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 um, with a professional. Just what are the issues? How do I navigate this? Um, and really, because the the general advice that I'm seeing now really does have to be tailored to each individual.
0: Hmm, interesting. But those discussions are in a group, right, or not? Are those discussions? No, no, those, no, are, those are individual. Those yeah, are
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, no, we don't have groups for this kind of thing because right. it's because it because it really is individually
0: individually tailored. All right. So now, uh, uh, one of the most sensitive topics, of course, is that uh, every parent, especially these days, is concerned about the p- potential for their children to, God forbid, be abused right. in, in a summer camp atmosphere. There are other atmospheres as well, but let's start with one of the most obvious, which is summer camp. Right. And you based on, I don't know if the study you told me about in advance of this program, I don't know if it's been published. It has. Yeah, is it, it available to the public? Yes,
1: yes. And the full text is actually available online with PubMed. So.
0: Okay, so people need to know that. I, Anything we're going to cite is actually published already and out there. Correct. Just last month. Yeah. And and let's put it this way, the the percentages that were discovered uh, in our community, in the Jewish community, all right. facets of the Jewish community, all all, all parts of the Jewish community, uh, the, the percentage, even though they're not alarming, alarming compared to the general community, nonetheless, are alarming enough. Is that a good way of putting it?
1: I think they're quite alarming. You do think so? It's not more... The prevalence of sexual... According to the research that I did... Um, and this has been uh, found with other uh, research groups who have done similar work in the Jewish community. The prevalence of sexual abuse is not higher than it right. is in the greater community. Not uh, at least not not among Orthodox or non-Orthodox. Right. It's not.
0: Nonetheless, it's too high because it's too high everywhere.
1: And the n- the numbers that came out of our study were one si- one in six boys and one in four girls. And we're not just talking about unwanted touch. This right. is this is uh, something serious is abuse cases. A problem.
0: Um so now that parents are hearing this and the evidence is in so to speak right what you would call empirical evidence that people could actually read and and follow up on right cuz they could see this study right what additional advice in addition to everything we've said for years about these types of things to our audience what would you say to parents before summer camp
1: the most important prevention aspect thing and also which if god forbid there is something that occurs serves as a treatment The most important thing to do here is to make sure that the lines of communication are open, and it cannot be stressed enough. What that means is typically having a simple conversation with a child at some point in their early developmental period um, when it's appropriate for the child, which is about—sometimes people do things which are inappropriate— um, or make one
0: feel uncomfortable.
1: Make people feel uncomfortable, and if that happens, it's very important that you come and talk to me about it. It's just that's the most important thing: is to make sure that the child feels comfortable coming to the parent with something that is un- it is uncomfortable to them if it occurs, and that the parent and child can speak it out, and that the child has mentorship to be able to handle it. There's nothing more important. Here.
0: And the more one says that to their child, I would guess, the more likely. In the eventuality, the child would turn to the parent. well something has to be drummed into them, Yes right? and no.
1: Yes and no. What has to be drummed into them is that the parent um, is there for them, can guide them, un- loves them unconditionally. That's also related to what we were saying before about chilling, because if you have these expectations of your child, then they might want to socially appear a certain way to the parent and present right. as being more strong than they really are, or as though nothing happened to me, or something did happen, but it doesn't really matter. But if we can convey the message that we accept our kids the way they are, that we love them for who they are, no matter what has happened to them or what might happen to them and that we're there for them, no matter what. So that message has to be drummed in. I don't think talk to me about abuse. If it occurs over and over, I think that might make a kid um, more anxious than they need to be. Yeah. Um, um, So I think it has to be said definitely at least once and clearly prior to going to camp. Um, but beyond should that, should the
0: recommendation be made by a parent that there are going to be certain adults there, whether it's older siblings or, you know, I don't know, people in camp that, that we as your parents are familiar with already division heads, uh, head of camp, that you, my child, can go to and speak to? In this type of situation. It's a
1: great tool to have Confederates, to have people who are either in the camp community, right. if you will, that the child can go to because the parent doesn't have access. Uh, I, I think that's fine. Again, it's all about communication. Right. Uh, the cases that I've seen where people have an abuse history and it turned very problematic for them in terms of their emotional functioning, all of them, 100% of those cases, were where the lines of communication broke down between the child and the parents. And as a result, the child didn't get the guidance or the protection that they needed.
0: Wow, what a statement! Very important and a great tip pre-summer for all parents out there, and uh, can't be emphasized enough. And frankly, when you think of preventative measures, it's one of the easiest things one can do. So simple, you know. It's uh, and and look what one could, God forbid, be preventing. Right. Um, good piece of advice. Um, Dr. David Ross Marin is here We're talking about uh, pre-summer jitters, anxiety, different things that both. Potential campers um, and uh, and parents are going through at this time of the year as summer camp is upon us. Information about everything we discussed, by the way, centerforanxiety.org. Their offices are on West 57th Street in New York, Bedford Avenue in Brooklyn, Route 59, up in Suffern. What's the subject of your book, by the way? What's it called?
1: Ah, uh, thanks. Spirituality, Religion, and Cognitive Behavior Therapy, A Guide for Clinicians. Hmm. So this is a book for... Um, people in the mental health field who want to learn how to talk to their patients about spiritual and religious issues. Interesting.
0: And they themselves don't necessarily have to be... Not necessarily. ...spiritual or religious. Not necessarily. That's correct. In order to do that. That's correct. Um, Do you, by the way, and and this may be a loaded question only because of your background, but would you say in general... That the only that that someone who is guided one hundred percent by religion and the majority of people in this audience are okay. quite obviously um, should seek out help from somebody who can intelligently speak about even possibly from experience religious and spiritual issues
1: you're talking about seeking out a therapist yeah who does
0: um, in general for mental health advice
1: in general for mental health advice um, spiritual and religious issues are often very. Closely connected to mental health um, in both positive and negative ways. Um, in fact, we just had an event last night about this subject in uh, in Crown Heights, yeah. entitled uh, "Spiritual Struggles and Mental Health," um, and it was uh, a discussion, a panel led by David Braid. In fact, who's right uh, right here in the studio um, with myself and Aladdin Arai, who's um, really a really awesome awesome dude. Um, and uh, we spoke about the experiential aspects of it. So bottom line, uh, what came out of our discussion last night is that uh, spirituality can be a very powerful guiding force, like you've said, and for that very reason, it can be something that helps a lot of people in their mental health, and it can also be an area in which people struggle. Most uh, individuals who have a religious background are in a religious community. When they have mental health uh, concerns... They take a religious framework. The aspects of spirituality are relevant to their symptoms. So how could you not go to a clinician who's going to be able to discuss those with you? Now, do they have to be from your faith? Not necessarily. Some people feel more comfortable speaking about their religion with someone who's outside of the faith. And that's fine. Um, But the point is to go to a clinician who's going to respect it, who's going to recognize the positive and negative aspects of faith and how those relate to their mental health, and to help uh a patient to gain clarity around that issue those are the main those are the main points
0: well good luck with the book thank you it sounds like one that uh the academics and clinicians are going to appreciate greatly i hope so who publishes a book like that
1: so guilford publications hmm, we've heard of them. guilford press yeah they do a lot of the uh, uh modern psychology clinical
0: Very kind of book, nice. so pre-summer meetings Contact yes. any of your locations. Go to the website. What do you want people to do?
1: Any of our meetings, any of our locations, um, they can definitely call the call the office, and you have that number. They can definitely go to the website. Um, I just want to mention something. If sure. parents have a concern about how, or a question about how to speak to their children about that sensitive topic of abuse that we were speaking about, or if they have other questions about this area, uh, as you know, we offer these. Th- for a free 30-minute consultations for anybody in the community. Right. People can call our office, whether they're parents, whether they're educators, whether they're camp directors or potential counselors. People can call our office and it's a service that we provide and we love to provide it. My clinicians love doing it. They say, hey, I got a 30-minute consult. That's great. Because they're they're very happy to be able to provide this free guidance and, and service to people. Um, so people can just call the office and uh, we're very happy to... Um, to, to try to help them in a limited way.
0: All right. Uh, the Center for Anxiety, they are at um, uh, West 57th Street in New York. They're up in Suffern. They're in Brooklyn and Crown Heights. They have an office in Massachusetts as well. And there is a phone number, as Dr. David Ross-Marin mentioned. There is a phone number to call, 1-888-837-7473, 1-888-837-7473 website centerforanxiety.org centerforanxiety.org you can subscribe there to their newsletter as well on the site and be in touch they're offering free service which is pretty amazing and of course a lot of great advice pre-summer for parents who uh, would like to seek some additional advice uh, to strengthen the um uh the um i guess we'd say the the strategies for strengthen the the whole strategic outlook of how a parent prepares their kid for camp strategic is exactly the word
1: can't just amble into parenthood and Being, uh, you
0: know, doing it well. Yeah, exactly. I thank you very, very much, Dr. Ross Marin. Okay. It was always wonderful to see you. Thank you. It's great seeing you. Stay as chilled as possible. (laughs) And you too. I appreciate that. (laughs) Centerforanxiety.org. More coming up. You're listening to JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Dr. David Ross Marin of the Center for Anxiety. The one and only Senator Joe Lieberman, who has just written a book, With Liberty and Justice, the 50-Day Journey from Egypt to Sinai, joined us to discuss the book, an OU Press Magid release uh, recently on JMNAM. Here's my conversation with Senator Lieberman on this edition of JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. I am told that Senator Lieberman is with us live via telephone. It is no secret that one of the highlights of Yom Embassy for us, was when uh, Senator Joe Lieberman joined us live from the Embassy celebration in Jerusalem. He's out with a brand new book, which we get to discuss with him. Senator Joe Lieberman, welcome back to JM and the
2: AM. Nachum, great to be with you. How are you doing?
0: Everything is wonderful. We were so thankful to yeah, you for joining. We were so thankful to you for joining us on Embassy Day. It made it a real. Chag Sameach for us. And, and I know, uh, just, just for, for 20 seconds, just tell us again how amazing that experience was.
2: Well, it was amazing. I do want to say first that as I was coming out of the ceremony, and, you know, it was like a simcha, of course, and <laughs> therefore a lot of people you knew. And I ran into uh, Ruben Margolis. Right. Now, now I did really, to have full disclosure, as we say, in politics, I know Ruben Margolis because long before I met my ish, Hadassa, Hadassah, Ruben actually dated Hadassah. Oh, is that so, funny? When oh. they were both in uh, Boston. She was at BU. I think he was at Harvard. Oh, anyway, is that funny? <laughs> so he's a, he's a wonderful guy. So as I'm coming out, I see him. I say, hello, blah, blah, blah. And he says, I'm on with Nahum. <laughs> And jam in the A.M., would you talk to him? So I said, really, do I have a choice? <laughs> of course I have to talk. Anyway, that was the moment. Sun was shining, beautiful day. I, so to go back to your question, I mean, it was a thrilling day. And really, it was a thrilling day for Israel, for Yerushalayim. And I, and I must say, I felt it personally. I mean, obviously, for Israel and, and Jerusalem, it was just another step toward saying uh, Israel is here to stay, and Jerusalem is obviously its historic capital. Uh, and now the the uh, strongest, greatest nation in the world, United States of America, finally moves its embassy. And honestly, you have to uh, thank uh, President Trump for yeah. it uh, because he had the the guts to to do it. I I was involved. and why do I say personally? I mean, apart from the fact that I you know, generally I'm a a Zionist, to put it in one word. Uh, In 1995, I was privileged to work in the Senate with three other really great people. Bob Dole, who was the Republican leader at the time. John Kyle, a wonderful senator from Arizona, sort of my contemporary. Pat Moynihan, a great Democratic senator from New York, of course, and myself. We were the Four who really worked hardest, I would say, but we had a lot of support on the Jerusalem embassy relocation. I passed, I think it was 93-4-5 against. Big, big bipartisan vote gets adopted. Unfortunately, President Clinton, who said that he favored moving the embassy to Jerusalem, thought it was the wrong time because uh, it would uh, hurt the peace process that had um, obviously begun in a big way just two years before with the Oslo Accords and Rabin and Arafat with Clinton on the White House lawn. So, anyway, they they forced us to put in this waiver uh, for presidents every six months, and uh, beginning with Clinton, then going to um, President Bush '43, uh, and then President Obama, they waived it every six months, and um, then to, again giving credit where it's due, even though <laughs> President Trump. Um, just said, this is wrong. This is obviously Israel's capital. We're, we're putting our embassy in West Jerusalem. It doesn't affect the peace process. And I would add, as he didn't, unless somebody thinks that the Israelis are going to give up Jerusalem or, or West <laughs> Jerusalem. Right. Forget about it. So anyway, it was it was just a great day, a wonderful uh, ceremony. I was, you know, David Friedman, our ambassador, is a friend of mine. He's a partner in the law firm. He was a partner in the law firm. I'm with now, so it was a thrill for me to see him in this role. And I think he just handled it beautifully. There was tremendous participation by the Christian evangelical community, and yeah. it was just—it was just a, a very memorable day. And I, I, you know, I felt very grateful uh, to be there, really, and to be part of it. And we were grateful that you
0: helped us feel part of it. Uh, Senator Joe Lieberman is with us live via telephone there's a a brand new book it's called with liberty and justice the 50-day journey from Egypt to Sinai Senator Joe Lieberman with Rabbi Ari Khan it's an OU press Magid release you can find it at Magidbooks.com Senator Lieberman why did you write the book?
2: Well, you know, this was something that was in me for a long time. And uh, just as the Shabbat book that I did, oh, about five years ago was in me, and I took the time, in a way, I had the time to write it because I decided not to run again. <laughs> so, in the time that I probably would have been spent going around America trying to raise millions of dollars for my reelection, I was able to work on that book. And I was so grateful for the reaction to it. And again, I say, at the beginning of this book as I did at that one I'm obviously not a, a rabbi I'm, I'm a caring Jew I'm, I'm proud to be a Jew I, I take great strength from you know our traditions halacha, etc uh, and um, uh, and I wanted to record that and and, and see if I could draw people uh, more people in so it, when, in this book is both about Shavuot and about the law I mean it's about Shavuot in the sense that you know i've always felt something is un, is wrong almost unfair that that uh, pesach is the most observed of jewish holidays and then shavuot which is connected so deeply to pesach uh, is probably the least observed of the chagim even though it completes the story and that's where i make the larger point about the law in jewish tradition um uh, hashem liberated the children of Israel, Bnei Israel, from Egypt uh, and slavery, uh, not just to wander free in the desert or even to stay in Egypt and be equal citizens. Uh, we were we were liberated for a purpose, which is to go to Har Sinai and to receive the law, the Ten Commandments, the Torah. And um, and really, what what happened there was the beginning of um, Legal systems, both obviously in the Jewish world, but in the in the world generally and particularly in the western world and so i I try to talk to both about Shavuot, uh bring more people to it and uh about um the importance of that day and about what the law means. We need law if we just freedom is not enough, freedom is our birthright right. but with just freedom and not law and the values of law. There would be chaos. There would be uh, it would be like it was in the time of Noah, chaos, immorality, uh, maybe even self destruction. With the, the law, we have a chance for justice.
0: Part of the book, and no doubt part of your research, uh, is the Ten Commandments. We know how central they are, yes. not only to the holiday of Shavuot and the giving of the Torah, but of course to our tradition, and I'm sure you would argue to to all of Western tradition at this point, and maybe even other societies. I mean, the Ten Commandments are in right. fact. You know, the bedrock of, uh, of of laws that you just described, uh, did, did you get, after researching it and you give an analysis of each one of the Ten Commandments, anything additional at, at this stage of your life that you either learned about them or felt about them or, 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 you know, you can describe in terms of their role in this world, you know, different than what you knew before uh, you, you know, went into this deep analysis of each of these Ten Commandments?
2: That's a really interesting question, Acham. Because it, 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 writing a book like this is a learning experience. So you, you're researching to some extent. Um, uh, I was paired with Rabbi Ari Khan, who's a wonderful scholar. Amazing from uh, Bar Ilan University. So he he sort of informed. We had great discussions. We were like a, uh, a you know a, 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 we had our own little study group. But I will tell you that there were insights as I began. Now, how do I, because as you know, I, I uh, put this book together in 50 short essays, and it, part, part of that is it can be read for every day of the Almer, um, But or it can be read separately, but right. each of them is uh, one and a half to two or three, or maybe at most four pages. And so how do you try to make a point about the commandments? So, But, it, but it, I did have... New insights, some of them about the Ten Commandments. Uh, some of them are sort of obvious, but if you step back and look at the Ten Commandments as the promulgation of a system of law, right at the beginning, you know, I, I am Hashem your God who brought you out of Egypt, is a, a, a what better way for a legal system to begin? It's not really a commandment, it's a statement of the authority by which the rest of the commandments are issued from Hashem. And also the immediate linkage to taking you out of Egypt and slavery, which links Hashem to the concept of justice and freedom. So it just struck me that that was a foundation point that most legal systems don't have, although we adopted, our founders in America adopted very similar words in the Declaration of Independence. The, The second thing... It uh, just comes to mind quickly is the the, the, the last commandment about not, not coveting, and um, it it just struck me with a clarity that this is the kind of law that no uh, secular legal system could or really should adopt. Good because point. You, the, That's a great right, point. Because, <laughs> right, because we don't, we you know, the law can't tell you how to feel, it can't can't tell you not to covet your neighbor's property or oh, God forbid your neighbor's wife, but the Torah can. And, and and the point there is that envy and coveting, to use the word, are actually the the though they're inside the person are the origin of so many um, so many acts of bad behavior, such as a theft, because you're co- coveting. Your neighbor's property, adultery, because you're coveting another woman, and even in um, in international relations, a nation or a leader covets another nation's property, right. say, and and that leads to aggression and invasion. So you know, what I mean, it's- those are some some reactions. You know which Your one, question is an excellent
0: one. I appreciate that. You know which one I really, I, I mean, again, I think each one of them you have a, a perfect example of what you just described, but on the on the simplicity of do not steal, and you have to admit there are a couple of commandments yeah. that are really simple, like two words, yeah. you know, <laughs> don't steal. Right. It, it, it's amazing, right. it's amazing that, that the reason, as you point out, the reason that it has to be so simple and so broad is because every generation like we see now in social media, identity theft, etc., has its own definition right. of what stealing is. And if it was too specific right. that people you know, would think of excuses here, it's so broad that every generational you know criminal act <laughs> could somehow fit under that umbrella. And I thought that's a great point.
2: Thank you for that. I mean, when you think about it, the Torah might have said, don't steal your neighbor's uh, cow right. or ox. Correct. But uh, Which would have been quite relevant. Uh, and, of course, nobody could have dreamed that. <laughs> That should say, identity. Your neighbor's identity <laughs> on the Internet, but that's where we are.
0: Senator Joe Lieberman with us. The book is called With Liberty and Justice, The 50-Day Journey from Egypt to Sinai. It's done with Rabbi Ari Khan. It's OU Press, Magid Books. Go to magidbooks.com. So now it's 2018. It's the United States of America, and you know you're in a country that essentially, as you just described earlier, is built mainly— on the Ten Commandments, and has a, has a great similarity, and great, I don't just mean great in terms of vastness, I mean great in terms of, you know, level of affection, great similarity to our tradition, frankly. So right. so why do we have a country that unfortunately, it seems, on a regular basis, is going further and further down from those values as opposed to strengthening those values?
2: Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, first, let me validate what you've said, and I, I Briefly, because this is not a detailed historical book, but you can trace the Ten Commandments um, adopted by Christianity, both by the Catholic Church pretty early in its history, St. Thomas Aquinas said that the Ten Commandments were, in their view, the, the perfect embodiment of the natural law that God gave to the human race, because on our own we couldn't understand what was naturally right. then in the Protestant Reformation, uh, like a thousand years later or a little more, um, comes John Calvin, particularly the English minister-theologian, and he he puts the Torah, uh, what we would not today call the Hebrew Bible, uh, but the Ten Commandments, particularly at the center of the Protestant Reformation, it gets adopted. Um, to a great degree, in the um, Anglo-Saxon system of law from England, and then it's brought here to America by the by the Pilgrims who were followers of uh, Calvin, and it, it's reflected uh, deeply in our uh, founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and then in all that uh, followed. And, and look, we've strayed away from them. And and I, mean, I had the uh, opportunity and privilege to write a brief. Op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal last Friday about this very topic, and to to talk about the ways in which both in public life and in private lives um, uh, we've we've strayed from the the guidance and and um, and values of the Ten Commandments, and really, even though they're quite old, you know, they're yeah. timeless, and we really ought to find our way back both in public life and private life, uh, to the values that are expressed in you know, the, the Ten Commandments. There's no be- no better guide. And the great thing is that they really are broadly accepted, certainly by Christianity. To a, I, I learned in my research on this book, to a significant degree, by Islam. I mean, this is like the old uh, joke of Bibi Netanyahu when he went to uh, India and he said, "We our alliance together has... Um, uh 1 billion uh 300 and uh 8 million people uh mr prime minister modi of india of course 1 billion 300 million of them are indians and yeah. 8 million are <laughs> jews but in this case one could say if you put the christians muslims and jews together uh you probably got close to uh 4 Billion people on Earth, um, uh, four, about 14 million of them who are Jewish, who really accept the uh, the Ten Commandments, and certainly the Christians do the 2.2 billion Christians in the world. So,
0: well, the point, uh, the point you made er- the point you made earlier in this conversation is so vital, and that is that. With freedom, you need values. With freedom that we enjoy, yeah. you need. And, and, and no matter what type of freedom, freedom it is, whether it's governmental freedom in the form of libertarianism or other government regulations, et cetera, or uh, if it's just freedom in general, you know, in a society that calls for freedom and, and, and embraces right. it, you need values. Otherwise, it's, uh, it, it's going, there's going to be a breakdown in society. And frankly, I don't want to say that we are in a situation of a breakdown in society, but you know that there are certain areas of our society that do need a little bit of fixing.
2: So. They really do. They really do. I mean, it's human nature, and I think that was Hashem's vision. You, you could say, and I'm here I'm editorializing, that by the time of Yetzirah Mitzrayim, uh, we had examples of, uh, of a society that essentially was free but no law, and that was uh, uh, the time of Noah, right. which was a bad time. And then when, when, when B'nai Israel got to uh, Egypt, it ended up being a society of essentially all law and and no freedom because Paro was was the uh, the total law and um, uh, you know from the beginning when Moshe Rabbeinu pleads with Paro to l- let my people go, it's always to serve Hashem. Um, uh, it, in other words, it's a, it's freedom, mm-hmm. but with a purpose, which is to serve Hashem to go to Harsinai, to get. What, um, what my rabbi, when I was growing up, called uh, our uh, the Jewish mission statement, the national purpose. I remember him, Rabbi Aaron Kranz, in Stanford saying sure. that really we were we were a tribe, a, a big tribe, when we left um, Egypt, but we were not a nation, um, and we, we we really became a nation at Har when we got our our purpose, when one, one might say our, our destiny. In the uh, in the law and the rest of our history has been in some ways a um, an, an attempt to realize those uh, values in our own lives and, and in the, the Jewish state of Israel and mm-hmm. I think that's part of what we what we were trying to celebrate in um, in Jerusalem two weeks ago. No
0: question about it. Uh, I, okay, I got, we got to wrap it up. I just have to tell you first, Senator Lieberman, just like you did, yes. with, just like you did with the gift of rest where you made sure to give a very important shout-out to a Shabbos morning newspaper and cereal. I was very proud that you included in this Shavuos book the importance of good overnight dairy desserts uh, during Shavuos Torah study, so I was very, very happy with you. You, you. you know that I like the fact that you lay it all out there on the table and you and you, and you, you talk about the mundane and the important and the very same paragraph, yeah. so
2: thank you. Yeah. Oh, listen, thank you for appreciating that. And, uh, I hope I hope you had yes, a nice a i hope you had a delicious shavuos. i hope you had oh, a delicious you know, shavuos. we we were in baltimore <laughs> with our youngest uh, who lives there with her husband and four little boys uh, thank god and we had a we had a delicious uh, we had a wonderful <laughs> spiritual but also a great gastronomical shavuos. and i'm doing chuba i'm doing gastronomical chuba <laughs> this week <laughs> Like everybody else, <laughs> like everybody else.
0: <laughs> oh, I, I, think, I, think, oh I think I think I think our staff member of Rabbi Finkelstein down in Baltimore mentioned that he said hi to you on uh, on Yotiv. So yes, we we he, have he we have authentication did. that you were actually down there. Yeah. It's Good a luck, great community.
2: There. Good
0: luck with the thank book, you, and thank friend. you so
2: much for joining me. Great to talk to you. Be well.
0: Bye. Thank you so much. With liberty and justice, the fifty day journey from Egypt to Sinai. Senator Joe Lieberman, with Rabbi Ari Khan. Always a delight to speak with Senator Lieberman. He is amazing. That was my conversation with Senator Joe Lieberman. The book is called With Liberty and Justice. Shlomit Graevsky of Ale, Jerusalem, joined me recently. Uh, we've announced that Ale is going to be uh, the presenting sponsor of our coverage of the Celebrate Israel parade on Fifth Avenue. And Shlomit joined me to discuss the amazing work of Ale, specifically in the city of Jerusalem. My conversation with Shlomit Groyovsky is next on JM Rewind here at the Nachum Siegel Network. JM and the AM on a Wednesday morning broadcast. Nachum Siegel here in New York City. I've uh, I've mentioned um, that a week from Sunday, we're going to be on Fifth Avenue in New York City. Uh, our parade coverage, and boys, our parade coverage is going to be amazing this year. It's always amazing, even even more amazing this year. Uh, is brought to you and presented by our friends at Ale. We have spoken about Ale on the air before. You can go to ale.org, ale.org for information about um, about their activities and about their incredible services in Israel. And with us live via telephone is Shlomit Graevsky. Shlomit is the director of Ale Jerusalem. Ale is Israel's network of care for children with severe complex disabilities, providing over 750 children from around Israel with high-level medical and rehab care in four residential facilities in Jerusalem, B'nei Brak, and the Negev. Shlomit Graevsky, shalom and welcome to JM in the AM. Hi, shalom, how
3: are you?
0: Baruch Hashem, everything is wonderful. I hope everything is uh, is good over there in uh, Israel. Tell us, how long have you been associated with Ale?
3: Close to 19 years. Wow. <laughs> a long time, yeah, a long time. And
0: what makes Ale unique? What makes it, um, what sets it apart in terms of its services for those with uh, disabilities?
3: So I think two things. First, as you mentioned before, Ale took upon itself to take care of the most severe, uh, complex children and youngsters in Israel. It says no almost to nobody. I mean, we accept whoever we can give the best care. This is the first thing. And it is quite unique because you know that the, that's what we need to give the best answer to these children and youngsters is an enormous effort, and this is something we took upon ourselves. So that's the first thing. The, sec- the second thing, I think, is about our attitude. It's very easy, I would say, that once you take care of uh, needed people, it doesn't matter their age or sex or... What the cause is, it's very easy to give them the best care, the comfort, and the good food and good clothing and a nice atmosphere. But what's unique about Elé is that we believe in these people. We believe that everybody can reach something, can do something that you couldn't done, they couldn't uh, do before, them and their families. And once you believe in the children and the youngsters, I always call them the children because I treat them like my own private children. Wow. But once you believe in them and you expect out of them, so they do reach a potential. And I think this is one of the things that makes Ale very, very, very special that you give the children the opportunity to really live their best lives and close to the most normative life that you would expect our children to live.
0: Shlomit Groyewski is with us, directs Ale in Jerusalem. Give me an example. Uh, tell me a story of, a, uh, uh, of one of the people you've dealt with who has complex disabilities uh, who achieved something or did something that was you know simply unbelievable.
3: i can many stories. In my mind, the first thing I can think of is a baby which we received directly from hospital. It was a twin. His twin brother passed away immediately. It was a premature baby. And we received him from the hospital. And I remember the professor who told me, listen, I've seen his brain in the CT. Don't expect anything out of him. Since we don't, I mean, we never react to the examinations as if they're the only truth. So we took the baby. The parents, you can understand, were in a terrible state. It was the first boy after three girls. And they were in a terrible state. They couldn't take him home. And he came to us with all the tubes, with the feeding tube of course, not speaking. They told us he was blind. They told us nothing would come out of him. It took us two and a half years, which one afternoon I get a phone call from the father, and I see him almost every day, and I get a phone call from the father, excited. He said, listen, look at the the WhatsApp I sent you a picture. And he sent me a picture of his son, he was four at the time, drinking from a cup. (laughs) So this is something that I'm excited when I speak about it even now. I mean, there's something you have to believe in, and to reach him. So you can say, I mean, okay, so he drinks from a cup, so what's the the great thing about it? No. For the family, that something could have been done with a child, and now they can take him home. They don't have to make all the the fuss about tubes and and machines and everything. They can give him to eat and to drink like a normal child, and they can take him home, and he can be part of the family with his other brothers and sisters. That's one one small, small story. I can tell you many other stories of, of children that need oxygen 24-7 and need a uh, nursing care 24-7. And we took upon ourselves to make them part of a Bnei youth movement, which we opened up in our place three years ago. And once we open up a regular Bnei I mean, you know what a Bnei Akiva oh, yeah. for our children is. Yep. Every week, every week they come the leaders, make a, um, you know, some kind of activity with them. They go out to the rest of the Bnei students in the country to, you know, to, to wish to, to be short activities, summer camp, winter camp, for the special needs activity. But it would never occur on anybody's mind. These children with the cubes and wearing diapers and in wheelchairs could be part of this normal activity. And this is a list.
0: You know, Shlomit, in this country, we always talk about uh, disability inclusion uh, and the efforts that are made in our community and other communities to to do just that, to include those who have, disabilities and challenges. It seems to us in, in, in so many of these conversations with Aleh and others that in Israel they do this so much better than we do or other countries around the world do. We, we, do you get that feeling that when it comes to disability inclusion Israel's at the top of their game? Listen I
3: don't know so much about the rest of the country that I can tell you that it's an issue here in Israel. It's an issue because every student, of uh, high school students, even in the ninth grade, is part of the Tikkun Olam program these days. Um, that they're supposed to volunteer and get, and get to know our population, all the rest of the people with, with their special needs, to get to know them, to include them in their lives, to include them in society, to know that they're part, an equal part of society. So that's an issue from a very, very, very early age. And again, you have to believe. First, in this idea, and secondly, to believe in the youth, in the regular, in the normal and healthy youth, to know that they can make a change, and think this is again another another um, project, I would say, or an issue, a very important issue that these children do, that these young students do, to carry out this program and to make it to make it happen.
0: What do they do? They, they meet so with they, I... they meet with them. They go on trips with them. What types What types of things uh, happen to? So I'll
3: tell you. This thing. Sorry. That's no right. The Sikunolam program is a program that it's together with the Ministry of Education. It's a very, very, it's a national program, okay? And I lay leading it with the Ministry of Education. The idea is that we, and not only us, I mean, many other uh, organizations would deal with special needs, we we let these children in their schools to know what the special population is, okay? So we go there, and staff go there. Show them films and give them the sensitivity and speak to them about it medically, educationally. I mean, in all means, what these children are, what can be expected out of them, what, how is the work, how is the way to work with them, etc. And then they have seminars at our homes. I can tell you, I'm part of every seminar twice a week. 60 or 70 children, young students, come to our home, and they all to see the children, our children, of Vallet at their own natural surroundings to get to know what it means a child in a wheelchair. What it means that you're blind, or deaf, or both, that you have no ability to eat, but still you want to taste the world and you want to enjoy the life. How do you do about it? Where do you go? How does it happen? What kind of other projects you can do with society? And once they get to know these children at their own natural surroundings, so it cuts down the borders and it cuts down all the, the I mean, it, it enables them, okay? To get to know the children on an equal way, to look to them not in a superior way, like we come to comfort you or to volunteer with you or to make your life happy, we come to be your friends because we're the same age. You have your disabilities, probably others have their own disabilities, but we can find a common way to grow up together and to have a good time together.
0: Is this only That's happening? The
3: whole idea about the olam
0: Is this only happening in Aled uh, Jerusalem, or it's happening all around the country?
3: All over, the, all over the four facilities, and it will be spread to the idea that all young students of high school will be part of this program, probably, and many other organizations as well. LA is leading it at present.
0: What reaction do you get uh, from parents of those who have challenges um, when, when they are able to spend their time, spend their, you know, spend their time and spend these, these trips and these encounters with, you know, students from around the country?
3: So again, I can tell you a story about the mother. We sometimes know these volunteers come and take our children for weekends. I mean, to their own homes, to synagogue. They sit Friday evening at table together with them, wanting to go to school with them. And one Matishabas, the, the mother calls me and tells me, listen, I want to tell you something. Her son is 16 and he has a friend of Ale, a friend at Ale. And she calls me and tells me, listen, at the afternoon, I saw my son, she tells me, taking out, taking care of a 20-something-year-old um, boy over in a wheelchair, fed in a tube, fed with a feeding tube, in a wheelchair, in diapers. He was the volunteer in charge of him, a friend of his. And she says to me, listen, the next time his teacher is going to call me and tell me that my son has a lovely potential, but he does not, he does not exceed it, and he can do so much more in school, I will remember this Shabbat mm. where my son took care of this young boy, and changed his diaper, and spoke to him on the way to school, and spent all the time together with him, and I know I educated my son well. Amazing. Originally, that's a mother's reaction. So, I mean, you can understand the feeling. I mean, it's a win-win situation always.
0: hundred percent. And the impact on the students, I guess, is obvious. The teachers see it, the parents see obvious. it. The impact all on... All the time. Yeah, the and impact... Yeah, I'm, go ahead, I'm yeah you
3: see how interested they are. They ask all the questions. They want to know. They want to meet the children. They want to understand their lives. They want to understand their challenges and how, what they can do about it, okay? And sometimes they do not know anything about these children, okay? It's, it's a distant area. It's a distant subject. And then they get to know them very closely.
0: Shlomit Graevsky is director of ALED Jerusalem. Go to org. A L. EH.org, A-L-E-H.org for more information about uh, all of this, information about Team Aleh, information about donating and supporting the great work of Aleh. She's been with them for, uh, uh, for 19 years, and they have, believe it or not, since 1982, since 1982, they're heading toward 40 years already over there at Aleh. It's amazing. Um, since 1982, they have provided Israeli children with severe complex disabilities with the best Available care and the opportunity to develop to their fullest potential. About how many are you? How many people are you dealing with in Jerusalem? How many are you directly caring for?
3: So living is living with us are eighty two at present, and another seventy five or eighty come on a daily basis. Pretty amazing. The schools and kindergartens and preschool programs that's in the land Jerusalem altogether. The four facilities close to 700, 650 or seven hundred.
0: Pretty amazing. Unfortunately,
3: but I think they're very fortunate to be with us. Uh,
0: No question about it. They are very fortunate to be with you, and uh, some of the situations they're in, as you described, are unfortunate. But thank God they have somewhere to turn, and their families have somewhere to turn when they're in this type of situation. Ale is Israel's network of care for children with severe complex disabilities. They provide over 750 children from around Israel with high-level medical and rehab care in four residential facilities in Jerusalem, B'nei Brak, Yedera, and the Negev. In Jerusalem, the director is Shlomit Graevsky. Shlomit, continue your amazing and incredible work. There she is, Shlomit Graevsky directs Ale Yerushalayim, and uh, they have now for 36 years been doing this work, and they have gotten to the point with this Tikkun Olam project where they are uh, in the tens of thousands of Israeli students who are experiencing um, this incredible program uh, participating with those at Ale and really uh, getting a hands-on approach and a hands-on experience uh, with uh, with Ale uh, clients, with Ale um, with Ale uh, students. The um, the website is ale. dot A L E H. dot org. Information about supporting Ale and information about all that Ale does is available on the website. Plus, Team Ale. Uh, info is there as well. Go to org. I remind you that Aleh is our presenting sponsor. They will be with us during the Celebrate Israel Parade on Fifth Avenue in New York City. An amazing way for us to bridge the gap between Israel and the diaspora. As we broadcast primarily for the diaspora, we will have this incredible partner in Aleh, uh, Israel, uh, along with us on Fifth Avenue, and we greatly appreciate it. That was my conversation with the Shlomit Groyovsky of Aleh, Jerusalem. Aleh will be the presenting sponsor of the uh, Nachum Siegel Network coverage of the Celebrate Israel Parade on June the 3rd. Thank you so much for listening in to JM Rewind. Plenty more coming up. Have a wonderful day and keep listening to the Nachum Siegel Network.